This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. This is the third and final part of our Salem Witch Trials miniseries. In this episode, we're taking a look at the how, the why, the what, the actual fuck caused slash allowed slash fostered the Salem Witch Trials and the outcome for its victims. We have a few podcast announcements, so make sure you don't skip straight into the episode, tempting as it may be, and make sure you stick around at the end for our recommendations for books, movies, and TV. First and foremost, thank you so much for hanging in there with us and supporting us. We can't apologize enough for the delay in getting this episode out to you guys. It's been a really bumpy ride since we went into lockdown because of COVID-19. We lost a cousin at the end of March, and then a month later, literally, guys, a month later, because of COVID-19, another cousin of ours died of complications. So it's been a lot to process, especially since in Russian, we don't have a word for cousin, um, it translated to English, the cousins we lost were our dad's second brothers, so they were basically like our uncles our entire lives. Um, and it, it's just been very, very difficult. So we sincerely hope all of you and your loved ones are safe and well during this time. We were also dealing with being stuck inside all day, every day. It is quite the adjustment. I mean, honestly, it's different when you can't actually go anywhere rather than when you choose to stay somewhere. You know what I mean? So it definitely took a toll on our creative side, and it took us a little bit to find it and get it back. So here we are, and it's actually the end of the season. Surprise! That's right. The Salem Witch Trials marks the end of the first season of Dear World Love History. Salem was actually always going to mark the end of season one, and we are actually going on hiatus until about August, September, before season two hits your ears. Yeah, it's going to be a long one so that we can get a chunk of the research done for the second season and get a bunch of episodes ready to roll out when we come back. Plus, we need time to get away to read a few things for fun, you know, wrap our heads around everything that's going on and spend time with family, and work on a few other things that are near and dear to our hearts. We love you all, and we appreciate you tuning in more than you can ever know, honestly, which is why we want to come back at you with a season two that's going to rip the turrets right off your favorite castle. But... Don't lose hope. We're not going completely radio silent because we want to hear from you, our listeners. Oh yeah, we've been waiting to do this bonus episode for a while. We have a question for you. What does history mean to you? What drew you into it? What do you love about it? Who or what are you obsessed with the most? It's time to hear your voice, and we mean literally hear your voice, as in on the podcast, chatting with Renee and myself about you and your love for history. So if you want to get your voice heard, let us know ASAP. We want to chat with as many of you as possible during our hiatus. And no, you don't have to be Dr. So-and-so of medieval history. Anyone and everyone is welcome. If you'd rather not be on the podcast for one reason or another, send us your answers on social media via direct message, tweet at us, email us, and whatever you want to do, and we will share it on the bonus episodes. You can also leave us a voicemail at 
and we'll play it during the show. So where can you find us? On Twitter, at Dear Historians, on Facebook and Instagram, at Outlandish Historians, or email us at hello at dearworldlovehistory.com. We'll be on the lookout and get back to you as soon as we read it. All right, two more things and then we're done. Promise. All right, so this is something that's very important to us, very near and dear to us, something we're also really, really passionate about. Adrian and I run a literary magazine and small press. So we don't usually mix the two. She means the podcast and the press. Yes, that's what I meant. Thank you. (laughs) But we're working on a very special project, an anthology to thank and honor members of the armed forces, both past and present. Twisted Press is currently accepting submissions for poetry, prose, and even fiction for the anthology. We have the greatest respect for our service members, and since we can't thank all of them personally, this is our way of saying thank you. And this is our way to give back to those who have sacrificed and answered the call to service. All, and we mean all, net proceeds from the anthology will be donated to a veteran charity. If you are a veteran or currently serving or know someone who is, whether it's family or a friend, please consider submitting. Even if you don't know anyone who served or currently serves, please submit if you just like to say thank you to those who do. Even though those two words can never express how thankful we truly are. And be sure to pass it along. Submissions don't close until July 4th. We'll link you up to the submission guidelines in the show notes and in the episode description for Thank You for Your Service and Anthology. If you have any questions about it, feel free to email us at twistintimesubs at gmail.com. And what month could be more perfect for this announcement considering it's May and Memorial Day is at the end of this month? All right, so this episode features a promo for the Small Town Secrets podcast, which will feature at the end of the episode. We may have been a teensy bit biased and up in arms in our last episode or two. <laughs> if you noticed, who knows? Maybe you should have. Um, and we're kind of sort of sorry. Sort of. Kind of. Not really. If you, Yeah, right. Like, if you kind of squint. Um, we have a lot of feels about all of this that went down. And, you know, we understand we're looking at it through a modern lens. But it's just... You know, sometimes we just can't contain it. So with that said, let's head back to Salem Village, Massachusetts Bay Colony, one last time. In parts one and two, we covered the history of the trials before, during, and after. How it started, what happened, and the consequences for those involved. But you know what we realized? We left someone out when we were covering the after. And we're going to make up for it right now. Yeah, egg on face for us right here. So much egg. All right, so poor little four-year-old Dorothy Good, the daughter of Sarah Good, was accused and arrested as well. When she went into the prison, she looked like any other kid. Healthy. In prison, she wasted away and came out of the jail looking sickly. Like, it affected both physically and mentally by the harrowing experience of a toddler trapped in a prison chained to a fucking wall. Okay? Locked away without the sun, without fresh air to breathe, without anything to do, except listen to the suffering around her. Her younger sibling was born in the prison and died in the prison. Her mother was hanged as a witch on July 29, 1692. Dorothy had no idea what was going to happen to her. According to A Delusion of Satan by Francis Hill, Dorothy's father, William Good, wrote that little Dorothy was locked away for seven to eight months. At four and a half years old, she should have been out in the world, playing in a field, socializing with other kids, you know, or people in general. Instead, she was stuck in her own literal hell and came out of it stunted and changed. For the rest of her life, Dorothy needed someone to take care of her. We don't know how long she lived or when she died, but we know this. Dorothy Good never lived a carefree life. 
She never grew up to have the same experiences as others her age did. As a result of the psychological trauma visited on a young, undeveloped mind, it's unlikely that she married or had any kids. So the trials didn't just take away Dorothy's mother and younger sibling. They took away her childhood, her youth. The trials literally stole Dorothy Good's very future from her. Stole her freaking life, okay? Yeah. So, Dorothy Good, we're keeping you in our thoughts. Now, it is time to move on to the why. The various reasons behind a village and its surrounding towns turning on their neighbors and people they didn't really know and sending them up for the hangman's noose. We're going to cover as many possible reasons behind the trials in as much depth as we can. As we know from part one, Massachusetts Bay Colony was dominantly Puritan, and the Puritans wanted to keep it that way. Quakers and Anglicans were very literally not welcome. Neither were Catholics. It was Puritan or bust. By 1692, the colony had gone through a bunch of really cold winters and icky summers, which basically resulted in a decrease of agriculture. Crops were now being brought into the colony instead of sent out. Before this came King Philip's War in 1675, and taxes went up to help fund it and pay for soldiers. When the war ended, the taxes were still really high, and the economy took a hit. The stand-in government couldn't really govern anything, not even, like, you know, a shopping cart. Now, towards the end of 1691, there was a light at the end of the tunnel, right? A new charter, a new governor... But that also meant the colony was basically starting from scratch with their laws, and Puritanism was no longer the end-all, be-all religion for the colony. And since the laws still had to be made, the courts couldn't open yet and hear disputes and lawsuits. So what does that all lead up to? A lot of people pissed off at their neighbors or, you know, other things in their life, wandering around with all their angry feelings on the inside. And as with everything else, the dam has to break at some point. Could all that pent-up anger have morphed into accusations of witchcraft? All right, so let's quickly jump back to the original accusers for a hot second. Nine-year-old Betty Paris and her 11-year-old cousin Abigail Williams. Two young girls who were looking for an entertaining way to pass the time. What's better than taking a look into the future, eh? Some other girls may have joined in. Who knows? Ironically, this wasn't the most out-of-the-norm thing the girls could have done during that time. Usually, they wanted to know who their husbands would be or what their husband's job might be. An egg white was cracked into a glass of water and, insert dramatic gasp here, (gasps) it looked like a coffin. Was this the exact moment that sealed the future of Salem? The moment that started their quote-unquote affliction? It very possibly was. The image of the coffin, plus the fact that they were doing something super forbidden, could have brought on fear and guilt so intense it manifested itself physically. If this is the case, it explains why the fit started with Betty and Abigail. So why did the girls start throwing out the names of witches? How did they know they were being tormented by minions of the devil? Because they were asked. Because the adults in their lives said so. Betty, Abigail, and the other initial accusers didn't start naming the forces of darkness until the grown adults around them started asking who was responsible. Girls, who's torturing you? Gold stars all around on that one. If they hadn't been asked that question, who knows? The trials may have been avoided. Or maybe it was an inevitable course they were on due to all the tension boiling up throughout the community. Maybe the tension would have come out in a different, less murder-like way, though. You know, if no one thought of bewitchment. As for the girls... Once they started accusing people, what could be more freeing than having all the adults hanging on their every word? The fact that the adults were listening to them for a change definitely played a part. 
in our opinion anyway. I mean, really, when you look at it, these young girls who are basically being told their entire life, like, okay, you know, you're five years old, you can play. But once you get to a certain age, you start have to, you know, you start needing to learn the womanly arts of cooking and sewing and washing and, you know, stick into this box and marry and have babies and take care of those babies and make them into mere, you know, more Puritans. So acting out at you know, that time and having people actually looking to them for some kind of answer, that is, you know, quite the uh, power rush. But it wasn't the only factor that contributed to the trials and subsequent executions. There was another girl having fits in 1692, actually, outside of Salem. Mercy Short, also afflicted. This could have been another Salem, but instead of gathering accusations for mercy, Cotton Mather shifted it towards religiosity. He pushed it into, you know, religion instead of the devil. So Salem Village might have been able to go the same way had it been given the chance. Here's a question. Why Salem? Out of all the cities and towns and communities, why was Salem Village the epicenter of this witch hunt? Number one, because of the unrest and factions people had broken themselves into. And two, in a way, Location, location, location. I've been dying to say that. Just like that? Just like that. Like yeah, a creep. Yeah, it was weird. That was weird. All right. Leave me alone. And, and number three, the afflicted girls, of course. It was operating both somewhat independently of Salem Town and as an offshoot of it. The village was the strange in-between place. A part of, yet apart from. Sure, the village could have its own ordained minister and its own meeting house, but Salem Town still held the political strings for the area. Small disputes could be managed within the village, arguments really, but the bigger things had to be taken to the town. So things just kind of festered among some of the residents, their animosity, jealousy, land disputes, etc. If the village had the power to settle all those ruffled feathers, maybe things could have turned out differently, or at least been mitigated to a small outbreak instead of a year-long catastrophe the colony had on hand. Less people may have died, or maybe not died at all. Not that less people really makes it any better, though. So adding to all their ruffled village feathers was the fact that some of the village dwellers were puffed off about the town itself, as in not having a big enough role in town politics or a big enough voice, or the fact that they had to answer to the town at all in any capacity whatsoever. And the town didn't want to deal with the village shit all that much, if we're being honest. Neither did the much larger and more powerful city of Boston. So there were a lot of negative emotions floating about. Again, we're forced to speculate because really that's all we can do at this point, just kind of bring together all these things like a jigsaw puzzle. If the town or Boston had stepped in to play peacemaker, could things have turned out differently for all our victims? Could they have cut off this powder keg at the knees? Now, as we mentioned in part one, when Samuel Paris came on the scene as minister of Salem Village, he came into a town rife with arguments and side-picking galore. At that exact moment in time, the village needed a strong understanding minister to help settle matters and diffuse this tension. What they got instead was one Samuel Paris, flame fanner extraordinaire. Adrian's been holding that one in. Oh my god, have I ever. Let's take a look at some of the things behind some of these village squabbles. Salem Village was an interesting place where both farmers and business owners could be found. So you've got a bunch of people dealing with the agricultural side of things and suffering the hardships that come with that, as well as people who were on the industrial, commercial side of things and had their business in Salem Town. So, and, you know, at that time, the commercial side of things was actually growing at a faster rate than the agricultural. Then there were the ever-present land disputes, which weren't really a new thing. But the more sons a family had, the more land that 
they might have to break up between them, and their son's sons, and so on, kind of leaves you with a shed and a grilled cheese if you keep parceling off the land. Even better, you have one or two sons who inherit the lot and the rest are sitting around wanting more. So we've got tension between the village and the town, agricultural versus commercial-industrial livelihoods, and land disputes. Before Paris came on the scene, they weren't all that thrilled with their ministers, so they all got the boot. As we mentioned earlier, the colony laws were still up in the air until the new governor could arrive. And then, Paris happened. Paris was sort of the tipping point for this small community. Instead of bringing people together, soothing tensions, and being the bridge to peaceful resolutions, he was short-sighted, unreasonable, and preached fire and damnation left and right. Members of the village didn't like him and didn't want anything to do with him. Some people even stopped attending his sermons. The village was split in regards to Paris, Team Paris and Take a Walk Paris. As a result of this, Salem Village was on the precipice, ready to explode. So we've got all these tensions, right, bottled up in this one place. And then, let's talk about the grand picture for a second. In total, there were 142 people accused of being witches in the ever-so-famous Salem Witch Trials. Now, only 25 of them were really from Salem Village, you know, the place where this whole tragic mess started, where all this tension is, which meant most of the accused came from outside the village, not Salem Village natives, outsiders, those people over there. 17 were from Salem Town, 66 from Andover, Rowley, Topsfield, Ipswich, Lynn, and Reading, and another 30 from the northeastern Massachusetts area. In other words, people who weren't personally known to most of the people in Salem Village. The insiders, the wealthy and established of Salem Village, like the Porters and Joseph Putnam, weren't accused. Which is weird, you know, if they're airing out their grievances via the trials. And there were some disputes going on there with those men, okay? You know, Joseph Putnam and his brother Thomas did not get along. So the sticking point here is that those men, the Porter brothers, Joseph Putnam, were very popular in the village. And more importantly, again, the whole location, location, location thing, they were in the village. So status plays a part to some extent, and especially, you know, in Puritanism, They may not have had lords and ladies, but they did value a social hierarchy to an extent. So men of wealth and or status were accused, as we know, like Reverend Burroughs and Captain John Alden, but they were those people over there. They were outside the village confines. They weren't a part of the community. So were these men outside of the community being accused because of their wealth and status, or were they maybe stand-ins for people in the village that they couldn't necessarily accuse. So was John Alden of Boston a stand-in for Joseph Putnam of Salem Village? Now, why do outsiders matter in the grand scheme of things? Honestly, because they were easier to accuse. If they didn't know them on a personal level or as a neighbor, then it was easier to point a finger, maybe even feel less guilty about it. You know, maybe that played a role. I'm going to feel bad if I accuse my cousin who I can't stand, but if I accuse that guy who I saw three times in my life, it's a lot easier to deal with, even within the village itself. So people who didn't conform to the norm, people who'd been in the village for a shorter period of time, or people who upset the so-called peace, the so-called social hierarchy of the village, all counted as outsiders and were thought of as less than as a result. As for our magnificent bewitched girls, how did the affliction spread from one to another, from Betty Paris and Abigail Williams to beyond the confines of the Paris household? Simply put, mass hysteria, otherwise known as conversion disorder. 
a psychological disorder that causes symptoms such as, you know, convulsions, blindness, the same thing the girls were suffering from, and it can spread and become an outbreak. From what we know about conversion disorder, it's caused by stress and anxiety, not I lost my car key stress or I forgot to make dinner stress, intense, constant stress, like a student who is striving to be the best 24-7, constantly worrying, constantly anxious about studying and getting A's and getting into the college they want, someone who is unable or unwilling to manage their stress or realize they need to take a break. It all adds up and eventually manifests itself physically. We start first with Betty and Abigail, right? Living in the minister's household, living up to his ideals and expectations and the ideals and expectations of Puritanism. That sounds pretty stressful, actually, okay? Add that to their fortune-telling fiasco and his fire and brimstone evil is everywhere sermons, and we have a pretty good recipe for conversion disorder. Yeah, and I will say that, like, we were pretty tough on at least is like all the accusers, obviously, um, and I, we still are, but... especially the initial accusers like Betty and Abigail, um, I can see how basically how stressful it would be living with Paris. And if mass hysteria was what manifested in them, then I completely get it. Not that I it it absolves them of the what they did. Not even a little. Yeah, but it's just it's makes it more understandable where they're coming from. After Betty and Abigail, we've got Anne Putnam the Younger, daughter of Thomas Putnam and Anne the Elder. You know, she also became afflicted. Her parents were pretty bitter about their lives. They'd been cheated out of what was rightfully theirs, after all, in their minds anyway. Young Anne grew up in this house, one of ten kids, the oldest actually, dealing with whatever her parents may have said behind closed doors about neighbors, about, you know, Uncle Joseph, about anything and everything, about the family in general. Because Thomas was just, he was not... A happy, good person. She also grew up looking after her younger siblings. Again, she's the oldest, so now she's got the stress of having to corral nine other children because that was the job of an older sibling. It it still is today when you think about it, but not to the extent that it would have been in 1692. Now, after Anne, Mary Walcott caught the bug, Anne's step-cousin and the Paris's next-door neighbor. So we were kind of seeing how they're all interconnected. The Walcotts were one of the first to learn about what was going on inside the Paris home. So, you know, Mary got it from her parents, what's happening to Betty and Abigail. After Mary, other girls joined the fray. Elizabeth Hubbard, Mary Warren, Mercy Lewis, Sarah Churchwell. Unlike the previously mentioned girls... This set was in service as servants instead of surrounded by family. You know, some of them were orphans, which left them open to abuse, verbal and otherwise, and working literally all day. So lots of stress all around for everyone. And once a few girls were experiencing mass hysteria, it was only a matter of time before it spread. It tends to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. It can infect people like wildfire until the source can be found and dealt with. The more stressed people became, the more people became afflicted. Once you add in reverence and spiritual beliefs, it's easy to see how things took a decided turn towards witchcraft. But the question must be asked, can mass hysteria be the only reason that over 70 people accused others of witchcraft? Even historians, experts in the field, can't make up their minds or come to an agreed-upon reason for all the craziness that happened. And it's because there are different strokes for different folks which included making shit up altogether when accusing someone or coming before people as the accused. In this case, mass hysteria may have been the reason behind some of the behavior and accusations. Extreme stress, anxiety, and pressure to conform. 
What other psychological issues could have abounded at this time? Two words. Sleep paralysis. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's when someone can't move when they're waking up. Basically, the brain is awake and is waiting for the body to catch up. It can be terrifying for the person who's suffering from it. Yeah, I mean, I've heard stories even from people I know. And I don't know about Renee. Did you ever suffer through this sleep paralysis? Uh, No, thankfully. No. Yeah, thankfully me neither. Um, but yeah, I, I've just, it, it, from the things that I've heard, it just sounds absolutely horrifying. You're literally imprisoned in your own body. So even like, okay, so as I said, you're imprisoned in your own body, but you can still hear and see during these episodes, but it can get worse. Some people feel like there's an elephant sitting on their chest, taking all the air out of their lungs. Sound familiar? Anything from the uh, symptoms that some of the people described during the trials? Several allegations were thrown at Bridget Bishop for supposedly visiting men at night and choking them for fun. Same thing for Susanna Martin. So sleep paralysis plus vivid nightmares and maybe a dash of mass hysteria could very well equal witches. Then again, what if witches were real? Okay, so based on 17th century thinking, they were. They thought witches were a real thing. They happened. They lived among them. And they were all evil. For them, it wasn't so much a question of are witches real, but how to tell the truly afflicted from the dirty, filthy liars and how to tell the witches from the people who are good and not evil and how to figure out why the hell someone would even lie about something so taboo as witchcraft. Attention? Very likely, for some of the accusers, we can only guess at how many, but it goes deeper than that. In Salem Possessed by Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum, they take a look at how the girls were harmed during spectral attacks. A lot of what the girls experience may have been self-inflicted. They're being pinched, for instance, which was a form of discipline during that time, right? So you lose your shoe, pinch, you get pinched. So if the girls throwing around accusations felt guilty about something, like their foray into fortune telling, for instance, they could have pinched themselves as their own punishment, right? It's like the people who self-flagellate. Same thing when it came to sticking pins in themselves, or they felt guilty about hurting themselves. So instead of admitting to it, or whether it's to themselves or someone else, they blamed witches. Admitting self-harm is difficult in today's society. In 1692, it was probably downright impossible. And this very thing could have fed the hysteria that was gripping Salem. Then there were the main accusers. Was it mass hysteria, or were Anne Putnam and her posse of misfit Puritans putting on an elaborate show? Think about all those times the accused stood at the examinations and during their trials. Boom. People burst into perfectly timed fits. Not once, twice, or even three times. Practically every single time without fail. There would be wailing and convulsing and everything in between. At one point, Mary Warren was an accuser, then the accused after she basically said they were full of it, and back to accuser again. And think about this. Mass hysteria may have been the driving force at the start, but Betty Paris was sent to Salem Town pretty early on, and even Abigail Williams stopped participating in the trials by July. The epicenter of the mass hysteria was gone. Betty recovered and was her usual self once out of Salem Village. So how many girls left as participants were lying and faking their symptoms? In the end, the girls might have been nothing more than puppets and the men in their lives their puppeteers. After all, women couldn't make an official legal complaint. Only the men could. Isn't sexism great? And most of the time, the villagers on the wrong end of the accusation weren't a part of the church.
So the men of Salem Village played some part in the witch hunt, either by pointing a finger or giving testimony. Not all of them, of course, but leading the charge were the Putnams, okay? And Thomas Putnam made it easy to see where he may have had a hand in manipulating how things turned out. His wife and daughter were two of the afflicted to start with. And Mercy Lewis, who was their servant. During the trials, he was a legal secretary, meaning he was the one recording the depositions during the examinations, about 120 of them. Plus, the depositions weren't completed in one sitting. Different ink colors were found on the documents, meaning Thomas wrote some stuff during the depositions and then came back to the documents later on to write some more. Why would he do that when the deposition was over and everything was already recorded? There was nothing more to add. Conveniently, though, the new bits of details were added in right before the trials were about to start. And believe us when we tell you that convictions were practically guaranteed if his deposition records were being used. So what did Thomas have to gain from Wicked coming to Salem? Well, he sure as fuck didn't have a lot to lose. Remember, his half-brother Joseph is the one who got the lion's share. You know, most of the Putnam land and wealth went to Joseph, who also happened to marry well and increase the goodness happening in his life. As in, his wife was also wealthy and brought that wealth to the marriage. Thomas, on the other hand, was married with 10 children and had basically zero money to his name. Anne and most of her siblings only inherited 10% of the Carr estate, which meant he had little to split between his children when they grew up and married, or he died. Thomas Putnam was basically poor adjacent. We're not saying that he did this to get rid of outsiders so that villagers could buy up the seized land and increase their holdings, but it's definitely possible. Financial ruin can make people do awful things, and the witch hunt was definitely awful. And yeah, of course, there's no guarantee that he would be able to cash in on whatever was seized, but I guess it doesn't hurt to try, right? So, you know, there could also be the explanation of people actually believing that the devil was torturing them, and the only thing they could think of was witchcraft. It all depends on if you're looking at this with a religious lens or a cynical one. Either way, Thomas Putnam helped fan the flames of hysteria, playing his part splendidly. Also this, his brother Joseph spoke out about the trials from the get-go. So if Joseph thought they were a load of hooey from day one, stands to reason that Thomas also knew it was all nonsense. But nonsense he could take advantage of, nonetheless. In order to understand why people were accused of witchcraft, it's first important to understand who was forced to stand trial. About 75% of those accused were, drumroll please, women. Women were, for centuries, looked down on as the weaker of the two. Foolish, simple, in need of saving. Eve incarnate. Women could be drawn to the dark side with promises of cookies. Plus, there was the whole sex thing. Some people want a contract signed with Quill and Ink. The devil asked for sex to seal the deal. No biggie. And since women were just full of lust and passion and ready to have sex at the drop of a hat, it was more likely a woman would be seduced by the devil. Because women couldn't control themselves. Unlike men, who were obviously the historical models of chastity, virginity, and marital fidelity. The women accused range in age, but many widows found themselves on trial as witches. The lack of a husband made them an easy target, and if they only had a few kids, or none at all, boom, could prove they were witches. Because, duh, witches had trouble making, baking, and birthing kids. So what else makes a witch a witch? In the case of Sarah Good, misfortune followed her wherever she went. After a series of unfortunate events, her well-to-do family was a whole lot less well-to-do after her father tragically took his own life. Then she married two poor gents and ended up deep in debt as a result, had a couple of babies, and didn't always have a roof over her head. Saying she became bitter would be an understatement. One day, she mumbled something under her breath when leaving the church after Paris gave her a handout. 
The next thing everyone knew, some of the girls started acting bewitched, and obviously Sarah Good was casting curses. But in the end, it very likely wouldn't have mattered if Sarah Good was casting a curse or blessing all the babies with good looks and strength. White magic had supposedly been practiced in the village before, you know, as in the case, actually, of uh, Mary Sibley, who baked the witch cake. But performing any kind of magic was a crime. All magic opened the door to the devil, allowing him to torment the good people of Salem and draw people away from the church. And man, did the devil know how to expand his enterprise or what? The church members continued to dwindle while Satan was apparently amassing followers in such large numbers that he could have created the Church of Satan in 1692. Praise Satan. (laughs) I appreciate your Sabrina reference. Same time. Now, the Salem witch trials were different in a few ways from the European witch hunts. Salem targeted mostly women, as did the European hunts, but for a slightly different reason. Before the colonies and their troubles, there was a handy-dandy little book called The Malleus Maleficarum, written by Heinrich Istitoris and Jakob Sprenger in 1487. I mean, 86. Now, if you're anything like me, call it the Malice Maleficarum, or the Malik Maleficarum. Find any way to mispronounce it because it will irritate the crap out of Adrian, and it gives me all the giggles. Okay, so at first she actually couldn't pronounce it and was like, what were you calling it? The Malice Maleficarum. The mal- yeah, but the Malice uh, Maleficarum. To be fair, I wasn't actually looking at anything, so I was trying to remember excuses, from memory. Excuses, excuses. Right, right, right. But now she just does it to annoy me. It works. We're going to ignore you. It's fine. So this book existed literally to blame women for witchcraft and evil. It went into why women were witches. These two clergymen believed that all women were born like Eve, as natural-born sinners, especially since men can't exist without women. But all right, let's keep blaming women for the troubles in the 15th century and every other century before and after, for that matter. Their argument was basically that women were too stupid and weak, unlike men, and so they were naturally predisposed to lack of control over themselves and way too passionate for their own good. Okay? And since women were as dumb as a bag of rocks, they didn't really get the whole religion thing, so were more than likely to turn to the devil. Ergo, witchcraft. All the laughs. All right, as if that's not bad enough, women were also greedy and angry all the time, and we're all about destroying the souls of others. Hey, some people take up gardening, some people take up destroying. We don't judge. Yeah, gotta collect the souls. Apparently, this was all because women were just so jealous that they weren't men, because they knew that they were dumber than a doorknob and less than a man could be. So, you know, witchcraft, which, by the way, is known as maleficium, because it was done out of anger or the desire to harm While the people of Salem believed that women were weaker, they didn't believe that women were born evil. Remember the Calvinist theory of predestination comes into play here. Everyone is already born with their one-way ticket to hell or heaven or wherever the heck they're going. But it was equal between the sexes. Men weren't any more likely than women to go to heaven. Anyone could sin. Puritans were more of the opinion that men and women had their proper roles. Men ruled the world and brought home the bacon, while women needed to become Susie Homemaker, had to adore their husbands and place them on a pedestal, and they should both have some sort of warm fuzzies towards one another. And they had to make babies, obviously. That goes without saying. So how does the Malleus Maleficarum come into play? Mm, it doesn't really, except to introduce Maleficium. Yeah, it's not like the villagers were like, there's witchcraft afoot! Someone consult the Malleus! That's not what happened. I don't think they even popped that one open. I totally just imagined this. <laughs> Someone just carrying around a book and opening it. Turn to page 68, everyone! 
Okay, I'm sorry. We're a little bit crazy, but that's fine. <laughs> All right. Because some of the villagers thought the witchcraft they were seeing were a result of the Maleficium, her gift from Satan. A witch cast her spells, and poof, animals died. Crops failed, children sickened. And it was all done out of malice. Angry women getting their vengeance on. Spreading their evil, and since some people genuinely believed this to be the case, they had no problem coming forward and making an accusation against someone. And most of those who accused a witch of Maleficium were men. As we saw throughout the trials, anyone could be a witch. Age didn't matter, and neither did gender. However, as we've mentioned a few times already, the majority of the people accused were women, aged anywhere between toddler age, hello Dorothy Good, all the way up to age 70, Rebecca Nurse anyone? Witches came in all shapes and sizes. Ironically, most of the accusers were women too. Ladies, what are you doing? Anyway, for a long time, witches were seen as old and hag-like. You know, the old crone with a hump and a wart on her very long nose. It's kind of... How I picture Baba Yaga, the, you know, evil witch who lives in a woods and eats children in the Russian fables. Paints a bit vivid picture, though. Even before the trials in Salem, the number of older women coming under suspicion of witchcraft was constantly growing. They were easy pickings. There were so many more women in Salem who were older than 40 than any other age group. And those were the women who were accused of witchcraft the most. Speaking as a third-party observer who's adopted the 17th-century Puritan way of thinking, what the heck did those old ladies have to offer to their communities? It wasn't like they could have any more children. Useless on that front. And that was basically a woman's most important job. Many of the women accused were too old to even be taking care of their own kids. And it wasn't like today, where parents just dropped their kids off with their grandparents and ran errands or went to work. In addition to that, witches were garbage human beings. Mostly women, though. Mean and hateful and glaring at people with their eyes, as opposed to, you know, with their hands. Ready to fight- Renee, they're witches. <laughs> they could glare with any part of their body, I'm sure. They were always ready to fight. They were always muttering. They were always, always muttering. They were women who didn't fit into the mold, who dared to step outside the little box society forced them into. The rebellion could be big or small. Didn't really matter. All that mattered was that the women were considered other. This included midwives, healers, and any other woman who was able to make money using a skill other than baby making, such as running a business or farm, a woman who could stand on her own and do what needed to be done. These women really threatened the men around them. They were the ones who didn't need a man to support them. They supported themselves and their families. Men weren't their superior, but their equal. And we couldn't have that now, could we? After all, the social hierarchy was one of the foundations of Salem and Puritanism. So the very best way to combat this was to make the women believe they were witches, or make others believe this. Women had to be taught that they were less than men, easily corrupted and full of sin. And this wasn't something new to Salem or the colony. This is multiple centuries worth of backwards thinking at work, okay? There was a reason some women may have confessed, aside from wanting to escape the noose. The men in their lives, including religious leaders, made sure to tell these women on repeat that women were susceptible to evil and darkness and a step away from the devil and blah blah blah. Some of the confessed witches may have truly believed that they were guilty. Some of their testimonies certainly said as much. They had, I didn't know I was a witch, I'm so sorry for my evil moments. Okay, one sin, any sin, might have been confirmation in their minds that they became friends with the devil. Then there were the younger girls, the kids, or the unmarried individuals who confessed when placed under pressure from their so-called betters. When they confessed as witches, they were basically stuffing themselves back into the box of the good and proper puritanical woman, regardless of the reason, self-preservation, or true belief in their own wickedness. 
So, you know, as we've gone through this episode, it, it really comes to light that there isn't one single reason to focus on that explains the how and the why of the Salem witch trials. With so many people involved, both as accused and accuser, different things were always at play. From greed to mass hysteria to true belief in witches and the harm they caused to flat out lying through their teeth, the trials were one of the biggest shit shows in American history as a result. Unfortunately, Salem wasn't the last witch hunt in history. However, it was the last major witch trial in American history. Some accusations sprouted up here and there in later years, but they came to nothing, thankfully. We will say this. Salem may have been the last true witch hunt, but it wasn't the last witch hunt. If you think back over the last 100 years, there was another witch hunt in the late 1910s, known as the Red Scare. We may not call it a witch hunt anymore, the things that have happened, okay, but... Let's be honest. Yeah, they're witch hunts. The the Jewish pogroms in Russia, the um, Armenian genocide, anything where someone is trying to get rid of something they're afraid of, that they're xenophobic about, that they're looking at as others, something they don't understand because they're not like them, that's a witch hunt. They may not call them witches, but that's exactly what it is. Right. A new name for the same damn thing. The one in the 1910s was known as the Red Scare Guys. They were on the hunt for communists, okay? They were looking everywhere, led by their hatred or fear. That's what they were looking for, outsiders to get them and get rid of them. All right, guys, thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. It's been a long, crazy journey, but we are finally at the end of season one. Season two is going to be even better. Our list of topics is uh, pretty spectacular, if I do say so myself. Speaking of, if you have any topics or eras or people you want to hear about, let us know. Shout it out on social media, message us, comment on a post on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We've already had a few requests on Twitter and Instagram, and our season two is looking even better because of it. So if you ask for a specific topic, and you know who you are, consider it done. Now it's time for our recommendations. Yeah, buddy. I'll start with A Delusion of Satan by Francis Hill. It's a really fantastic look into the trials. It covers the chronology and everything that happened along the wise of it. It's well-written, well-researched, and she pulls on primary sources, which is great. My recommendation is Death in Salem by Diane Folds. It's a really interesting book because it focuses on everyone. It tells you a little bit about the people involved in the trials in Salem Village and the surrounding areas. It covers the accused, the accusers, religious and political leaders, and anyone else you still haven't thought of. It's easy to follow in such a humbling book when you consider just how many people's lives were ruined or put to an end. There are also two books that we didn't really use for these episodes, but I have read them in the past, so I can recommend them with complete confidence. They are The Salem Witch Trials Reader by Francis Hill, and The Salem Witch Trials, A Day-by-Day Chronicle of a Community Under Siege by Marilyn K. Roach. Both are incredible. We didn't use the Day-by-Day Chronicle because it's over 700 pages long, and it's exactly what it sounds like, day-by-day. The Salem Witch Trials Reader is a collection of the primary sources from the trials and the author's commentary on them. As for movies, TV, documentaries, there's actually quite a bit out there, way more than Jack the Ripper or Romanovs, but a lot of it is used as inspiration or the basis for the series. To start with, there's the WGN America series, Salem, and you'll recognize the names of those involved, but it's one of those instances where they use the people and trials as inspiration for the show, and that's really it. There's actual witchcraft, it's pretty dark, and can actually be quite creepy. Watch it with your lights on. Yeah, that's how we've been watching it. Um, Now, it's a good show, but don't expect any sort of historical accuracy outside of people's names and the setting. 
Even ages are flubbed for the sake of the story. Lucy Lawless joins the cast in season two, and she is just awesome. Uh, and I affectionately call her Lucy, Lucy Flawless. Flawless. We should make that a hashtag. Okay, moving on. <laughs> There is also The Crucible, the play, and the movie. The play is great, the movie is meh, but it does a good job of representing the trials, and holy shit, The Crucible was performed at the Old Vic in London with Richard Armitage in 2014, and we were so lucky, and, like, just so lucky to see it. Absolutely blessed, honestly. Oh my god, it was absolutely mind-blowing. We will link you up in the show notes because you can rent it for eight quid on the Old Vic's website, and it is so fucking worth it. Yeah, Richard Armitage, I mean, the entire cast just absolutely, literally blew our minds. We were just completely in tears at the end of it. Now, there's the 2002 Salem Witch Trials film with Kirstie Alley as well, and a movie called The Covenant, uh, which is cheesy as heck sometimes, but we really like it. It's just good fun honestly. It's set in the modern world with witchcraft and descendants of some of the witches from the trials. Um, although I'm not, I don't know that any of them are actually historically, historical families. Like the Putnam family is mentioned, but other than that, I think the guy. Goods. Yeah. Um, ironically, um, these, it's about four guys, five technically. Um, and we'll just leave it there. It's just a good fun watch. And last but not least, A Discovery of Witches. It has connections to the Salem Witches, and if you read the books or watch the series, you'll enjoy the little historical nuggets. I know, I was freaking out when they would mention things. Dude, there's like a moment in there where like you find something out and it's like mind fucking blown. Yeah. And it's like, <gasps> oh yeah, my I was God. like, I saw what you did there. I saw. <laughs> I see it. All right. So while it's not technically Salem related, it more so mentions the trials a few times as well as the families. But it's about witches, so why the fuck not? Alright, both the books, the All Souls trilogy, and the TV show are fantastic. And since this is the final episode of season one, this marks the start of our official hiatus. If you would like to be on the podcast or have your answer featured on the podcast, reach out and let us know. This is for our What Does History Mean to You bonus episodes. All right, season two will start airing in August or September. We'll let you know for sure when we get closer to the date, and we'll do our topic reveal over the summer. It's a completely epic one. It really is. I'm just, like, over the moon excited. Really, honestly, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for listening and coming on this historical journey with us. We love you, we appreciate you, and we can't wait to share more with you. We hope you all stay safe and wish you and your families all the best. Historians out. Small Town Secrets is a podcast that explores the secrets and strangeness of small towns across the globe. They may be local legends, paranormal, true crime, or just plain weird. Join me every other week as I tell you stories of these small towns, as well as local headlines and listener stories. Get it wherever you get your podcast. For more info, check out stscast.com. Every town has a secret. What is yours?